Hi, my name is Alan, and this is Matinees on Main Street, a podcast about the history of the movies. In the last episode, we took a side trip to talk about several people who may not have received the credit they deserve for their work in the early stages of inventing the moving picture machines. Today, we'll return to our main story as we talk about Thomas Edison at his lab in East Orange, New Jersey, this time in the year 1889. At that time, he and his assistant, William Laurie Dixon, were starting to work on a viable moving picture camera and viewer. While they were working on those machines, Edison was focused on many other things, and those things would have made moving images very secondary. When reporter John Abeckett interviewed him in the latter part of 1889, Edison pointed out some of the many things that he was working on, and none of them concerned the movies. For example, he mentioned that there were a half dozen ideas that he was working on, and high on Edison's list was to find a way to convert coal to energy without losing so much of that energy through the radiation of heat. He also developed a way to allow moving trains to communicate with each other using the telegraph. Another discussion involved using electricity for capital punishment. That idea will become really notorious when he attempts to electrocute an elephant. He also speculated about the difference between a scientist and an inventor. A scientist investigates the theoretical, while the inventor, which was what Edison considered himself, deals with practical issues. In a side comment, Edison also mentioned that he had finally managed to develop a way to reproduce wax cylinder recordings. The phonograph was still a major issue. The year before, he went to court against the Alexander Graham Bell Group for infringing upon his patent of the phonograph. In the end, it wouldn't matter as both men would sell out to investor Jesse Lippicott. 1889 was also the year of Edison's appearance at the Exposition Universelle in Paris. He left for France in early August and didn't return to the States until early October. The exposition was one of the high points of Edison's career, at least from the viewpoint of the newspapers. Those newspapers covered Edison's trip to Paris and prepared the public for his autumn announcement about a number of novelty inventions that he had developed through his work on the phonograph. Among these was a phonograph clock, as it was called. Instead of chiming like a bell, the clock used a recorded voice that would speak on the quarter hour. He also arranged through the post office an opportunity for those who were illiterate to record their voices on phonographs, and the post office would mail the cylinder to the addressee. Again, at no time were moving pictures or the machines to make them mentioned. As for the Paris Fair, Edison was gone for a few months, but his staff of 40 mechanics and inventors had a laundry list of things to do, and that included his new assistant, William Kennedy Laurie Dixon. Historians have had a hard time unraveling where the Dixon family came from, but according to a descendant who is a genealogist, 
Dixon's mother came from Scotland and may have had relatives in Richmond, Virginia, while his father was born in Liverpool. By the time he was born, the family was living in Brittany, in France. Sometime during Dixon's adolescence, his father passed away. By the time he was 18, he sent a letter to Edison asking for employment of any type. He didn't get a job. Instead, what was left of the Dixon family moved to Virginia. Not long after the move, their mother died. The family seemed to be well off, or at least their relatives were. Dixon's oldest sister performed piano recitals locally, and his second sister sang. It's not known what Dixon did for a living at this time, although he did learn photography at some point. In the early 1880s, he and his two sisters moved to New York City. There, Edison set out again to pester Thomas Edison for a job. After a good amount of nagging and hectoring, he managed to convince Edison to hire him to work at the Girk Street Machine Works. Among the people he worked with at the Girk Street plant was his soon-to-be lifelong friend, Henry Marvin, and the budding electrical genius of Nikola Tesla. The Girk Street plant was a testing site for Edison's new dynamos, and in 1883, Edison was spending significant time there. That year, Dixon seems to have fallen into the role of plant supervisor. In 1886, Dixon was put in charge of laying line throughout Manhattan for Edison's electrification of the Big Apple. The success of that project brought him into the East Orange Lab, where he would work with Edison. Dixon's next responsibility was Edison's brand new project, the attempt to make the mining process less expensive and more efficient through electromagnetism. In his spare time, he would also pursue an attempt to link the phonograph to a device that would provide moving images. Together, they would display moving images with sound. Back in Episode 7, I mentioned that Mybridge and Edison briefly discussed this idea of combining a phonograph with a machine similar to Mybridge's zoopraxiscope. What Mybridge wanted was to build a machine that could demonstrate the facial movements of making sounds. Edison had hardly given moving pictures any thought up to that point, so he considered the idea and turned Mybridge down. But through the rest of 1888, he did give it some occasional thought, and he discussed the idea with Dixon. Late that year, Edison filed a patent caveat on his idea. It was unlike anything that anyone else was attempting at that time. While other inventors, such as Le Prince and Freeze Green, were working towards what we think of as a movie camera and projector, Edison's plans for moving pictures was to use celluloid strips that would hold many thousands of microscopic photographs in sequence. These sheets could be wrapped around a cylinder that could revolve in a way similar to the wax cylinders of the early phonograph. The machine would hold both cylinders and play them back, sound and vision, in unison. In the months before Edison and his wife left for Paris, he had his mechanics build his conception of the machine. During that time, Dixon's main project continued to be the iron extraction process, 
while his spare time continued to be used to work on what was called the Kinedo phonograph. That was the name of the joint phonograph moving picture machine. So why did Edison have Dixon working on the moving picture project? What skill did he have that the other lab technicians didn't have? Dixon doesn't seem to have been a professional photographer, but he did have working knowledge of the camera. He may have even shot photographs for hire at some point, although there doesn't seem to be a record of that. He had taken professional-looking photographs at the Girk Street plant when he started working there, and when he and his sister Antonia wrote a book on Edison and his inventions, he included professional-looking photographs that he had taken of Edison and the facilities. So while he may not have been as professional a photographer as were some of the other inventors, such as Edward Mybridge and William Fries Green, he still had some passable knowledge and skill with the camera. Sometime during the summer of 1889, Dixon started work on the Kineta phonograph. The machine was already assembled by Edison's mechanical department, so all he really had to do was develop the process that placed the serial photographs on the celluloid sheet and attach the sheet to the Kineta phonograph cylinder, as well as develop a playback system. There were probably two reasons why Dixon and Edison were relying on microscopically small photographs. One was Edison's desire to create a machine that was similar to the phonograph, and the other was the availability of the powerful microphotographic equipment the lab had previously purchased. Originally, the celluloid sheets seemed to have been coated with a photographic gelatin that Dixon would later call inferior. It might have been based on the solution used in the wet plate process, or it may have been something the lab had concocted. Whatever it was, it was too insensitive to record light within a decent period of time. Dixon soon switched to the formula used in the dry plate process, and it was much more successful. Still, it had one major flaw. It had exaggerated coarseness. In other words, the pictures look grainy. A big problem when you have such tiny pictures. And then there was the camera. It used electricity and at that point it was capable of taking close to 50 pictures a second. It was larger than a box camera, as it had to accommodate a sheet of celluloid. It was called the phonokinetograph. In other words, the name was the reverse of the system name. The naming system for all of Edison's moving picture machines is very repetitive and confusing, so I'll try to keep them straight. problems soon became obvious. The microscopic sized images were just too blurry to magnify, and once they decided to take larger pictures in order to hide the graininess, they were faced with less images per sheet. Dixon and his assistant Peter Brown were soon cutting the celluloid and attempting to assemble them in long strips. At the same time, they were continuing to make changes to the viewing machine meaning the phonokinetoscope. By the time they were finished, that machine would be known as the kinetoscope. At this point, the machine had to stay in sync with the phonograph. Dixon did this by running both the phonograph and the kinetoscope off the same motor.
Well into 1891, Edison was promoting the machines as a paired sight and sound system. And through all of this, Edison, Dixon, and Brown were spending much more time working on the mining project than they were on the kinetophonograph, meaning the paired system. Eventually, Dixon became aware of the limitations of celluloid. For these inventors, it was rather thick and stiff. The thickness blocked some of the light passing through it, and the stiffness made it a bit inflexible when the strips of celluloid had to pass through a machine. The thickness blocked some of the light passing through it, and the stiffness made it a bit inflexible when the strips of celluloid had to pass through a machine. The product was made by two different companies, Celluloid Manufacturing and Xylonite Company. Dixon dealt with both companies and found each was resistant to making long strips of film or even to make any variation more compatible to the Edison machines. Eventually, Dixon switched to camera film. The date when Edison and Dixon started using Kodak camera film is up for debate. It's known that Edison saw Murray's photographic gun when he was in Paris in late summer of 1889. Between Dixon's two biographers, one of them believed that Dixon started using camera film in 1890. The other biographer believes that after the Paris Exposition, Edison saw the results of the Monkey Shines video that Edison had filmed and told him to use film instead of celluloid. This contradiction about the use of film may simply be a question of when did these inventors find the time to study the use of film. Still, there is some evidence that the switch took place in later 1889. While Kodak had the best reputation for film on the market, and was the most aggressively marketed camera film available, they had just recently switched from their paper-backed film to an nitrocellulose-based film and were having problems. Even before Edison returned from Paris, Dixon ordered film for testing purposes. While the massive iron ore project continued to eat most of their time, Dixon spent most of his moving picture time testing and sampling film rolls. But just so you know, the movie machine market was a very secondary concern to those film companies. So what was the problem with film? In a sense, none of the film companies had bothered to do pre-production testing of their products. And there were at least four companies making film. Half of them were struggling with using celluloid while both John Carbutt in Philadelphia and George Eastman in Rochester were using their own nitrocellulose formulas that varied from celluloid. And physically, there were all sorts of problems, such as lumpiness, streaking, and graininess. Some films developed a haloing pattern around the pictures. Others wrinkled. For a time, Kodak developed a strange tree pattern on their photographs. Some of these issues were related to drying problems, either in the photographic solutions or the drying process at the plant. Sometimes the solvents or chemicals reacted to the nitrocellulose base. And, as I said earlier, the graininess usually came from photographically sensitive particles being too large. 
The smaller inventors like Le Prince and Freeze Green didn't have big enough operations to worry about these problems, but a large company such as Edison's was forced to deal with them. So were the professional and amateur photographers who were using Kodak, Blair, or Ivory Film. Now you know why so many of them were still using dry process glass plates. During this time, Edison kept the name of the kinetoscope in the news, now redesigned as a viewing machine. For a long time, he had hoped to have a sight and sound system. His new concept, which was a redesign of the kinetoscope as a console-style peephole machine, was built at the beginning of 1891. There was still hope that it could be linked to the phonograph, and the very first films were tested in it soon after. He demonstrated the test machine to the executive members of the National Federation of Women's Clubs, a group in which his wife was involved. Four months later, in August of 1891, Edison applied for his patents. His phonokinetograph, which was the camera, would eventually be rejected by the U.S. Patent Office. On the other hand, his kinetoscope, the viewing machine, would soon be approved. It was a large wooden box, about four feet tall, and it had a number of spools that allowed a long strip of film to run in a loop. At its top was a peephole lens that you could view the film as it passed by. A lighted tube blinked as each image in the film passed by the lens. This gave the illusion of moving pictures. By this time... Edison and Dixon had settled on Kodak camera film, and Dixon was repeatedly traveling from East Orange up to Rochester, New York, to discuss his continued problems with their film. While the visual problems were of less concern than before, film strength had become an important problem. Another issue was the sprockets used to pass the film forward in the kinetoscope. In 1892, work began on the prototype model of the kinetoscope, complete with a nickel coin slot. Near the end of that year, Edison's woodworkers started building the Black Mariah, what would be the first movie studio. Once the Black Mariah was finished at the beginning of the new year, everything seemed to go wrong and it would take well over a year before Edison could start producing his kinetoscope. First of all, Eastman Kodak was now facing major problems. At the same time, Edison faced some real competition. And finally, the United States economy started falling apart. As far as Edison's competition, I'll talk about that in a few episodes. For now, it's the economic issues that are more important. Throughout most of the 1880s, the American economy had been going like gangbusters, and many European nations had invested in American railroads, industrial businesses, and companies interested in raw materials. It's also fair to say that all this investment from both America and Europe caused a good amount of overproduction, especially in farming. Americans believed in land ownership, 
but the number of independently owned farms in America was staggering, and the amount of food being produced was mind-boggling. Like all economic collapses, overexpanded credit doesn't need much to tip the world economy from good to bad. In this case, it was financial problems in Argentina at the beginning of the 1890s. This led to a political uprising and takeover of the Argentine government. The venerable British banking house of Barings Brothers had invested heavily in Argentina. The political crisis caused major problems for the bank, and the company's managerial structure had to be reorganized. The Barings panic caused a financial crisis in Brazil, and British banks, which had lent a lot of money to South America, started tightening their belts. Eventually, this tight money policy started to affect American investments. By the beginning of 1893, the Reading Railroad, based in Philadelphia, found itself in real financial trouble. It was attempting to expand into New York and New England, and the financial crush caused its stock value to drop drastically. Over the next few months, other stocks started falling, and pretty soon, Wall Street was in trouble. Worse, as the gold reserve was not held by the American government, but by American banks instead, those banks started to sell off their gold. At the time, a country's debt was based on how much gold a country had in reserve. American banks started to sell off their gold in order to have cash on hand, but it also caused the banks to retract their credit. Of course, all of this affected companies who needed credit to expand, such as farmers who needed loans to grow that year's crops. Companies cut back on spending. They reduced excess expenditures, such as launching new products or investing in research. That hit Edison in a major way. The companies also started cutting back on employees as work slowed down in an attempt to remain solvent. That also happened to Edison. The crash of 1893 led to a depression that lasted for four years and was considered the worst economic downturn in America until the Great Depression of the 1930s. The Depression of 1893 forced Edison to lay off many of his workers at a time when he was starting to market the kinetoscope. It also ended the sales popularity of the phonograph. The sudden fading interest in the phonograph made it easy for him to switch his manufacturing company's production over to making kinetoscopes. Unfortunately, the financial downturn made borrowing much more expensive and the demand for kinetoscopes was not yet there. At the same time, the economic downturn paralleled another business problem. Eastman had officially changed its name to Eastman Kodak at the beginning of 1892, and by the end of the year it was struggling with the poor performance of its nitrocellulose-backed film. Because of this, Eastman let go of its head chemist, Harry Reichenbach. Reichenbach was responsible for developing the new nitrocellulose formula, formula proved to be inconsistent and he was responsible for the failure of a 50,000 gallon batch of the formula. Worse, George Eastman believed this accident was somehow intentional. This was due to the rumor that Reichenbach and two others were planning to form their own camera film company. Reichenbach denied it, 
although there is some reason to believe that the three may have been considering it. Eastman fired them, leaving the company without a chemist. After some months, Eastman brought in another chemist, and he also struggled to create a good formula. Finally, by the beginning of 1893, just as the economic downturn happened, Kodak shut down its production line. They claimed it was due to the inability to develop a good nitrocellulose coating, but considering the financial situation and the effect it was having on research, it wouldn't be surprising if the economic downturn was also at least partially responsible for Kodak suddenly shutting down. It certainly was convenient. The sudden shutdown really hurt Edison. His investors were clamoring for a kinetoscope to market. Now Edison had to find a new source for film for his kinetoscope. There were three choices left. The first was Vigera's ivory film, made in England. Ivory had a lot of problems. In fact, it was bad enough that British inventors like Freeze Green preferred to use Kodak, even if it had to be imported. Edison's second choice was John Carbutt out of Philadelphia. He was definitely geographically closer to Edison than was Vigera, and he had a good formula. Unfortunately, Carbutt's production was inconsistent, and his output was not large enough to meet Edison's potential demand. Finally, there was Blair in Boston. I mentioned earlier that Blair was primarily a camera company, but it jumped into the film market in the 1880s when it bought out the Allen and Rowell Film Company, also based in Boston. In the end, the issue came down to film quality and whether Edison and Dixon could get the company to make adjustments to the formula. Blair's problem was the use of celluloid rather than some other nitrocellular formula. It wasn't so much the thickness, which was a complaint with some companies, as it was the film's tendency to become milky rather than stay clear, as did Kodak's nitrocellulose formula. There was also the problem with the sprocket holes. When the paper-backed film was produced, cameras were punching holes along the edge of the film as a way to advance it. But Kodak wanted to install camera sprockets in its cameras as a way to keep the film's advancement steady. Edison put sprockets in his camera and kinetoscope, but they were not working well with the holes in the Kodak film. With the change to Blair, Edison now had to start this process all over again. This meant that Blair had to learn how to make the new nitrocellulose film consistent in thickness and strength. Throughout 1893, as film production first started, Dixon was continually sampling and purchasing various batches of Blair film. The camera sprockets had to be properly aligned as well as be of the proper length so that the film sprocket holes didn't tear. The film issue was just one of many reasons why Thomas Edison pulled out of the Chicago Columbian Exposition. There had been much anticipation about Edison appearing at the fair, and for a long time it looked like it would happen. But it didn't. While World's Fairs were starting to dot the globe in the late 19th century, some were more important than others. Paris had held a number of Expositional Universelles, but the 1889 fair is the one that's best remembered, and it's also where Thomas Edison met Jules Etienne Marais. 
Spain wanted to hold the World's Fair in 1892 in honor of Columbus's voyage to the New World. Instead, a joint fair was held, with Chicago, of all places, holding the New World version of the fair. Chicago had nothing to do with Columbus's exploration, but the city had had a significant disaster when its downtown burned to the ground in 1871. With the central city now elevated as well as built of stone by some of the greatest architects of that generation, Chicago was now a masterpiece of architecture, and it would celebrate the fair by building a temporary white city of plaster along the shores of Lake Michigan. In the beginning, Edison had hoped to display a new exhibit, just as massive as the one he had in Paris. But issues with money, sprocket holes, film, sick employees, incompatibility between sound and vision, and even demands from investors were making it quite impossible for the Edison Company to establish an exhibit there. For quite some time, it was hoped that it would happen. Edison had made big promises. A hall was set aside for such innovations as the kinetoscope. Probably the most important appearance was Ottomar Anschutz's electrotachoscope. It was called the greatest wonder of the world. Like the kinetoscope, it was built to take nickels and it proved quite popular. Mybridge also had a zoopraxiscope there along with some famous images. A young man from Virginia, who had done some mechanical design work for the railroad and was now dabbling in real estate in Washington, D.C., was impressed by the displays. His name was Thomas Armat, and he and inventor Charles Jenkins would soon build the first working projector in America because Edison preferred to build peephole machines. That issue will be discussed in a future episode. So while Edison struggles with his production problems, in the next episode we'll take a look at the kinetoscope, the Black Mariah, and the wonderful early movies the Edison staff made using themselves as stars. Thanks for listening.